This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X how to redesign your school for the people right in front of you. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula, development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. The Cybertraps podcast is proud to have Buoyancy Digital as its inaugural mission partner, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Scott Rabinowitz at Scott R Media on LinkedIn or by visiting buoyancydigital.com. Greetings, Jethro. Well, hello there, Fred. Happy Thursday. It is an excellent interview Thursday, and it is our pleasure to welcome to the Cybertraps podcast, Brian Devine, who is the Director of Educator Licensure 
I was trying to run those two together at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. So back in my home state, he has been the department since with the department since 1997, uh, actually when Scott started in digital media, coincidentally, and has been leading the licensure office since 2004. In 2014 and 2015, Brian was recognized as part of the teams that received the Manuel Carballo Governor's Award for Excellence in Public Service for his teamwork on implementing rethinking equity and teaching for English language learners, retail, great name, and his leadership in directing the licensure office out of a tremendous backlog of applications. Most recently, he was awarded two Pride and Performance Awards in 2020 for his work on the creation of a new emergency licensure license, new emergency license, and for how the licensure office responded during the pandemic. Brian is currently serving on the NASDAQ Executive Board as the Northeast Regional Director and previously served on the board from 2008 to 2014, including president in 2012, 2013, which was, I think, just before I got involved with NASDAQ, which is where I met Brian and have had a chance to talk with him about a lot of these issues. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Fred, and thank you, Jethro. Great to be here today and look forward to uh, our conversation. Well, we've got a lot of interesting things to cover today, but I think one of the things that's always helpful for our audience is to get a sense of what you do and what your average day is like, and then we'll spin off from there. Yeah, so what I do is uh, oversee licensure in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for all our educators. So, you know, if you want to become a teacher, you have to get licensed and you have to sort of run through our application process uh, at the department, follow the regulations, rules and regulations to get licensed, applying in our online system called ELARA, passing the appropriate tests, uh, and then navigating the process, which depends on you know, what license you're going for, um, you know, depends on what the requirements can be. It can be as simple as just having a bachelor's degree and pass the test. Or for someone that knows they want to become a teacher, they're completing a preparation program and doing their studies, probably undergrad, maybe graduate these days. And, you know, getting endorsed by their college or university to become a teacher and then advancing up to professional license renewal, all that. So that's sort of the nuts and bolts of, of it from a like treetops view, but obviously this podcast is related to educator conduct and so forth. So um, that is sort of the dirty little secret side of uh, the office and uh, and the role that I play, uh, working with our Office of Professional Practice Investigations. Uh, unfortunately, human behavior the way it is, it doesn't escape the role of education. And sometimes we have educators that uh, have either new conduct or previous conduct for applications, uh, you know, new applications and so forth that might negate their ability to continue or to join in the profession based on that behavior. Uh, That is an aspect uh, of my role as the director of educator licensure. Well, Brian, I think it's great that you start us off on a positive note because you actually deal with all of the licensure, not just the bad apples, so to speak. So let's let's give people a little bit of a, a sense of perspective about this because you're correct that Jethro and I spend a lot of time looking at the bottom of the barrel and trying to help people figure out how to avoid for instance, having to deal with your colleague Q, who will be chasing down their social media and stuff like that. But how many teachers do you have licensed in Massachusetts? And how many 
adverse actions might you take in a year? Just to give us a ratio. Right, right. So our workforce uh, is roughly around 80,000 full-time educators working in public schools in the Commonwealth. You know, obviously we're not a huge state geographically. We have roughly about 1 million students and including charter schools, which we do consider to be a school district, over 400 uh, charters, 400 school districts in the Commonwealth between public and charter schools. Uh, so that workforce of about 80,000, give or take, probably a little bit more if you factor in non-FTEs and so forth. Overall licensure, hundreds of thousands of people we have licensed over you know, the course of since licensure came in in 1951 in the Commonwealth. Uh, not all of them obviously you know, work, uh, get a, lo- a job as a teacher. Given Massachusetts uh, and its colleges and universities, we get a lot of uh, students that end up going home uh, to New Jersey or Pennsylvania or wherever home may be for them. So they may get a license with us but then transfer it to their home state. Generally speaking, we might issue 25, 30,000 licenses and endorsements in a given year. And again, you know, compared to a state like Texas, which I'm doing a presentation with in June at NASDAQ together, like that's peanuts. Uh, their workforce is like 187,000 educators or something like that. But, you know, relatively speaking, we're talking about less than 1% of the sort of cases that we see for which we need to conduct an investigation or review regarding someone's actions and conduct and so forth. So, you know, it's a it's a very small percentage overall, which is a great thing. Um, uh, but obviously, given the serious nature of what's at stake and working with our children and so forth, uh, that can become very time consuming, particularly depending on what the issue is. Well, it's obviously incredibly important work because we are talking about children. So even one case, honestly, is is one case too many. But it's a great reminder to people, and, and probably we should say it more often, that the percentage of people who wind up in you know, cyber traps for educators as a bad example or who wind up in the headlines, it's it's a really small number, both numerically and as a percentage of the teaching workforce. That being said, you've been doing this now for 17 years. You surely have seen some changes in terms of the kinds of things that teachers are getting in trouble for. So what kinds of trends have you seen over the years? Yeah, I mean, obviously with our, just life in general, right? Uh, the role of technology has changed over the past 17 years and so forth. And a smartphone, what, 17 years ago was a, a distant um, sort of Jetson sort of like concept, but now I want to remind people the Jetsons. (laughs) I was just going to (laughs) say, yeah, yeah, go, go look kids, go look up George Jetson on YouTube. (laughs) But, But 17 years ago, a handheld phone that could basically act like a as much do everything that your computer can do basically was a foreign concept, right? Uh, the original cell phones were basically in suitcases, many small suitcases in a sense. So yeah, definitely the role of technology has, has changed sort of the cases that we've seen and so forth over the years. And uh, that's, you know, from internet use, social media has obviously become a big uh, issue with cases and so forth and how, uh, educators might be either using social media or connecting with students in ways that they shouldn't be connecting with students. You know, obviously the text messages is obviously just a small way in which they can reach out and connect. Uh, there's all sorts of apps and so forth that can be used as well. Uh, yeah, so I mean, definitely technology is one aspect. We've always dealt with you know people that 
have had a little bit too much to drink and drove and shouldn't have and so forth. There's, you know, the very newsworthy, juicy cases uh, regarding inappropriate relationships that go way too far uh, with students and result in sex with a student and so forth. And that's, you know, on both sides of the fence. Um, you know, we've had some very national newsworthy cases regarding cheating with exams, whether that be state assessments uh, that students are taking or even you know, we do experience some cheating in which educators trying to obtain a license or get a new license have uh, cheated on an exam and so forth. So we have a litany of cases that, that runs the course, you know, and even it, when someone applies to us, they have to fill out an affidavit. And, you know, that affidavit contains questions like, have you ever been terminated from a position before? Are you in compliance with paying your state taxes? Have you ever peer, appeared in court before? Um, so depending on, you know, someone's answers and interpretations to those questions, you know, we don't think getting fired as a high school student from your job at the restaurant because you were consistently running late is going to withhold your ability from getting a license. But someone answers the question as honest as they are. And that still needs to get reviewed by someone in the legal office and determine that, okay, yes, this is not something that we are going to, you know, hold up their license on, you know, in other instances, like actually owing some child support through the Department of Revenue within the state is something that, you know, can somewhat impact someone's license. They're certainly not going to take a, li a license away for that, but we might put a short-term ability on them to add a new license or something like that, put a little restriction on there. Yeah, that's really interesting. So going back to the, the problems that people have gotten into, have you seen an increase in cases over the years or have the cases shifted from more of the DUI type stuff to the sexual issues with technology and things like that has what, what's your opinion on that or your perspective, I should say. Yeah. So I, I, there has been, I would say a little bit of an increase in cases and volume and so forth. Part of that is, you know, we were one of the last States, unfortunately, to bring uh, national background checks into Massachusetts. It's not directly part of the licensure process, uh, all our background checks are done at the local level, whether that's a state background check, which has been done for years, or the uh, more recent, and when I say that, like, excuse me, I'm not sure, maybe seven, eight years ago or so, we brought in uh, national background checks. Uh, but even that is done at a local level. If there's a sort of hit on that uh, background check, then there's a, a sort of a commitment and an obligation of the district to report that back to the department. Uh, so those type of issues have caused a little bit of an increase and then just awareness. Uh, there used to be an old saying of pass the trash and sort of this underlying agreement where, you know, one district might take on another uh, employee sort of knowing a little bit about the background, but, you know, just allowing that quietly to move on, sort of think about the old sort of church scandals in a sense, right? Where um, one priest may magically appear at another priest very quietly in the middle of the night um, and, and they get moved uh, somewhere, well, something along <laughs> those lines. So. I don't know if you ever knew this, Brian, but I'm something of a, a movie fan. Jethro knows that I drop these things in all the time, but I have to interject and say, both as a Bostonian and as a movie fan, people should really check out the movie Spotlight as a really fascinating example of how journalism uncovered the Boston priest scandal, doing some of that exact same work, looking up where priests had moved from one 
parish to another over a period of years. And, you know, certainly there have been folks who have been concerned about exactly what you're talking about with respect to teachers. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think there can be a consequence on the superintendent and so forth, right? So they have an obligation that's part of their sort of good character clause within their license as well, that they're supposed to report misconduct. And when someone that is part of the question, basically, is that if you are removed or you are forced to resign over misconduct, that the educator themselves are supposed to report that to the commissioner, but the district is supposed to report that as well. And that is in our regulations. So that sort of eliminates that sort of pass the trash type of concept. Well, and actually NASDAQ, uh, you know, the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification, they're working on a project that's specifically designed to help with this issue. Yes, correct. And they do. NASDAQ has done a lot of great work in, in the area of misconduct. It's become a focal point for them. Um, they've developed some courses in partnership with other uh, groups and so forth to help with awareness and in some cases correction for misconduct. Uh, and for a long time before this was perhaps more of a hot button issue as it is to today, perhaps, uh, they have developed uh, something called a clearinghouse in which as a state takes an action on a license, we end up reporting that to NASDAQ in the clearinghouse. And then a notification goes out through that clearinghouse to all other states regarding a particular educator and either their you know revocation or suspension or whatever the action was. We have a lot of different types of actions we can take on a license. We could send a reprimand letter. We can deny someone from a you know, actually getting licensed in the first place. We can revoke an existing license. We can suspend a license. Um, you know, that would be like for a designated period of time for 30 days or uh, a year or whatever the, you know, the action was and whatever deserving suspension goes along with that. Um, we can also limit a license. Uh, so sometimes someone that may have an OUI or multiple OUIs may have a limitation on their license, which restricts them from transporting uh, students uh, in their vehicle. But OUI? Uh, yes, like uh, drunk driving. Okay. Operating under the influence. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, the O was throwing me off. That piece about that limiting somebody's ability to transport students, I've seen a trend lately where districts are, are continually coming down on the side of the school employees are not allowed to do that at all. And that is just part of we're not going to get involved in that. And in a previous district, that actually called, caused quite a brouhaha because they didn't, they were saying you can't transport students no matter what, whether or not you are like, even if your kids are friends with their kids and you've been taking them places forever and now they're in your school, you're not allowed to do that. And, you know, it just caused a lot of consternation because you have to find this balance between being a human being, a parent and an educator. And sometimes our policies get in the way and prevent us from being effective at any one of those three things, you know? And, right. and so how do you, how do you manage that piece of, of helping people find a way to not be so restrictive that they can't do normal human things and yet be protecting the kids at the same time? Yeah. So, I mean, that is challenging, uh, you know, 
in some districts you could have, you know, the person who's the golf coach is a teacher and they're going to hop in the, the school owned van as opposed to getting a hiring a big bus and taking, you know, the eight people on the golf team to a match or something like that. Right. So, you know, that can be challenging sometimes, but, you know, it can be uh, a difficult balance between, you know, any sort of restrictions that, that come on board and the, the educators functions and responsibilities and so forth. But I think generally speaking here in the Commonwealth, I'd like to think that we do a pretty good job of uh, negotiating uh, with the educator and the district and if they're represented by council or the union and coming to ultimately a decision and a recommendation that sort of everybody is sort of okay with, maybe not necessarily on board with, right? Because if you're the uh, the educator that has the sanction going on their license, depending what the behavior was, they may not necessarily be in agreement with what that action was and so forth. But sort of, sorry, getting back to the NASDAQ thing, right? So whenever we do put an action on a license that gets reported to the clearinghouse and then that notification goes out across the country. Uh, so it's very helpful, especially in instances where someone has serious actions and they've been revoked in a particular state and no one would ever want that person in the classroom again. And it prevents them from sort of, in a sense, sneaking in uh, into another state and applying uh, without that state knowing that they had any sort of you know previous history and so forth, because obviously it can be challenging to track people across state lines. And it's not like we're paying attention to what's happening in Missouri every day, right? So if someone has uh, an action against their license in Missouri that may have been in the news there, you know, if they just come into our system in ELAR and create an account and start an application, there's nothing that would really sort of flag us that this person is a bad apple and there's something to be on the lookout for. But fortunately that NASDAQ clearinghouse allows us to do that because when we get that information, uh, we will end up starting to create uh, an account on that in that person's name and so forth. So if they apply, they'll be blocked. So can you help me understand the the difference between and how you would handle a situation where there might be a flag or an indication, but it may be something that that you would be okay with? How does NASDAQ keep that keep that straight and also, you know, protecting people's privacy as well? On the one hand, people should have a chance to be forgiven and start over. On the other hand, we certainly don't want to have people be repeat offenders. Can you just talk through those issues? Yeah, sure. You know, like in some states, uh, an educator breaching contract within a certain amount of days may, by statute, create a sort of sanction on their license. That's not something that we would consider to be a, a sanctionable offense here in the Commonwealth, and we wouldn't prevent someone from getting licensed uh, in Massachusetts if they came here from whatever state that has that type of situation in place, right? So there's an example where in one state, based on the statute, and there might be good logic behind it, because they may have uh, upheaval going on if within three weeks or a month of the start of the school, if a whole bunch of people leave and get a new job, uh, that's going to cause, uh, you know, a lot of churn and stress on the administrators in that district to hire new staff and so forth. So you can understand why something like that might be in place, but we wouldn't view that as something that would prohibit uh, someone from getting licensed. So while we may create some sort of measures within the ELAR that would prohibit or prevent someone from applying in ELAR, uh, we will 
you know, look at cases on a case by case basis and see what the situation is. Uh, we will reach out to that state, try to find out a little bit more regarding what happened. We will look for whatever documents we can obtain and, and review that and, and make a case on our own. Uh, it's possible that depending on the length of time uh, that an incident occurred and any sort of restitution since then, um, that we may feel comfortable with being able to license that person. Or, you know, in some cases, maybe um, we want to have someone to see and uh, talk with a counselor or something like that uh, before uh, we would move forward with their application or reinstate them from a suspension, let's say. So if we suspended somebody, you know, depending on what the instance was, you know, maybe they, we want to see them visiting with, a, you know, like a therapist or a counselor and have their sort of blessing from that counselor and that professional before we reinstate them. You know, Brian, I think the, the clearinghouse piece of this is interesting because, you know, when you started talking about this at the top of the show, you know, what you were really focusing on was that a lot of the checking traditionally has been done at the local level, right? It's really on the districts to run the background checks and so on and so forth. But what the clearinghouse seems to be introducing is a state slash national approach to these kinds of checks and what do you think about that? Is, is this kind of a seeding of local control? Should districts be happy about this? What do you think? I don't think it's necessarily a seeding of local control, at least not here in Massachusetts, since uh, we're, we're a pretty strong local control uh, state for employment. But we've actually, with NASDAQ, have opened up the opportunity for local school districts to get access to the clearinghouse by becoming associate members and so forth. So that's been a big uh, recent initiative in the past few years by NASDAQ. And depending on the district and, you know, their hiring situation and how many, excuse me, educators they may be bringing in from other states and so forth. Uh, fortunately, in Massachusetts, we're probably a little bit more of an export state than we are an import state. Uh, traditionally, we might hire or license about a thousand educators per year coming in from out of state. Uh, it's become a little bit harder for us to identify that number because in the past few years, we have introduced uh, something called the Sheltered English Immersion Endorsement to assist with, that's the retail project um, that was referenced earlier in your introduction. Thanks, Fred. Um, the uh, SEI endorsement is uh, required to ensure that the educator has some knowledge and skills to assist them in educating English language learners. So that is required before you can get sort of our full license. So sometimes someone coming in from out of state, if they don't have that uh, sort of background or have a course that can be applied, they might have to get a sort of lower level license that we kind of don't necessarily consider to be. It allows for legal employment, but it's called provisional. It's almost like a a little bit like a permit type, right? Generally, it signifies that someone hasn't completed preparation. But in this case, you know, we could be dealing with a veteran educator. They could be a national teacher of the year or something like that. But because they don't have the SEI, the best thing for them for immediate legal employment could be getting the provisional license. And then once they take care of SEI, they're able to move up to initial. We don't really have a, a path within the provisional to 
track out-of-state applicants like we did with the uh, initial license because we have an actual regulatory route that uh, allows for out-of-state candidates to be licensed in a streamlined manner. They still have to pass the tests and so forth, but uh, basically we're going to honor their education and honor their license and their preparation. Uh, and that's sort of identified in, in a path uh, that's available for them. So from a technology standpoint, it was pretty easy to track those numbers coming in from out-of-state. Yeah, interesting. So with the clearinghouse through NASTEC, there are some issues like DUIs where somebody may have been found guilty of that, domestic violence, things that happen outside of school. Do you have agreements with court records to to access that information? You know, somebody may have been convicted of those things and not been not had that reported to the school district or or something like that. So the school the other state may not know about that. Do you still find that or does that show up on background checks when you do that? How do you get that information? Well, first off, hopefully in their application, they're identifying that as an issue since they are signing off against the pains and penalties of perjury. Um, but it's possible that they don't identify that. And um, maybe that would be found at the local district level when they're doing their background searches uh, and checks and then report that back to the department when there has been a sort of hit on that. Whatever court documents would be public record, we would be able to get. And then the department uh, has had some subpoena power in the past. I'm not sure how effective that would be across state lines. Generally, if we're talking about like an OUI, certainly domestic violence gets into another level uh, of sort of severity and so forth. And depending on the, the OUI rate, we've had applicants that have had vehicular manslaughter and so forth. So certainly driving a car, depending on the circumstance, can lead to horrific events. So... Yeah, getting the records. Generally, Q and his team, I think, are able to ob obtain those as they need to, and it doesn't usually become a problem with coming out and developing a recommendation and with their investigation. Yeah, so on that front, are there, this is a delicate question to be sure, are there crimes that it's basically okay that someone has committed that's not going to hold back their license? Or is it because they're working with kids that it's so important that they have integrity and uphold all the laws? And really, I'm not really asking what can people get away with. <laughs> what I'm really trying to ask is what is it that that you can say, this really has nothing to do with education or does everything have to do with it because you're teaching kids? So in our licensure regulations, we have a good moral character clause. Right. So it's not a good educator class. We're not determining from this standpoint whether someone can be a good teacher with what they've done in the past. This is about protecting the integrity of the profession and protecting the students. So across the board, there's not necessarily, I suppose, murder, right? A sex with a student. Those would probably be things that are like automatic no-nos. But, you know, we look at the totality of the circumstances in the situation. How long ago was it? What was it? How is the applicant. Are they remorseful, uh, right? Have they paid their penance in a sense? You know, so it's a, it's a combination of things. Do, you know, do they have recommendations? Uh, do they have a school district that is vouching for them basically because maybe they've been a substitute teacher or paraprofessional, or maybe they're involved in an educated preparation program right now and they have people within that program that are standing behind them and saying, this person is doing a good job. They've been demonstrating that they're on the right path, that they're committed to working with, with children. 
going to that health professional and getting sort of a blessing from them that they're not a threat to children at this point in time and so forth. You know, all sorts of combinations can be utilized towards us making a determination. Yes, on, on the treetops level, there's probably a couple things that are sort of automatic, don't touch the stove type of things. But generally speaking, you know, we try to look at the, the whole circumstance and yeah. make a decision and a recommendation to the commissioner based on uh, the facts that we are able to discover. Yeah, well, I appreciate that response because I I think it's easy to think, well, I made a mistake, so I never have that opportunity to be a teacher when you know that may not be the case. And it's worth the effort, it sounds like you're saying, to go through the process and and see if it's if it's a possibility. And certainly some things would be like, no way, we're never gonna let that. But other things, you know, you can say, well, you know, that was 25 years ago and you're a different person and never had another issue and did counseling or whatever the case may be to, to overcome that. So I appreciate that response. I think Brian, you know, this is, this is sort of at the, the tail end of your professional uh, responsibility, right? Is when you're making these determinations with respect to whether or not someone gets a license or keeps a license. Let's shift gears here a little bit prophylactically and talk about two things. What would you like districts to do in order to minimize the, you know, specifically tech-related educator misconduct that you see in your office? And then we can close out with your comments on what individual educators should be doing so that they don't have to deal with you in that capacity. First off, I don't want to make it sound like my comments are, you know, pushing all the responsibility down to the local level and that these are things that, you know, oh, the, the district should be doing in this at the state level. We have nothing to do with this, right? So No, no, um, feel free to jump you know, on the hook. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, I think in an ideal world, we would have much more uh, of an opportunity to be out there and talking about prevention measures and sort of more awareness measures as, as opposed to be re reactionary to the cases that we get. So I think from an education standpoint, we would as an agency like to be at the point, perhaps a little bit down the road that we can do more to support districts and educators uh, and the professional overall regarding trying to bring awareness and prevention to this. This is a, a, the global we, right? But to answer the question from a school district and employer circumstance and situation, um, you know, first off, when, the, when they're bringing in candidates and so forth, whether they've completed educator preparation, you know, people have pointed to educator preparation as maybe that there's things that can be done there. But you know, there's a lot that it takes to become an educator. There's a lot of expectations and a lot of knowledge that someone is expected to know and be able to do. And that's growing. And it's putting demands on programs to be able to put people through, whether that's a four-year program or a four plus one, which is, um, you know, getting a master's degree within sort of the scope of earning their license as uh, so they just basically stay for another year and finish their student teaching and so forth. They come out with a master's and their teaching license um, in the four plus one model. So, 
I think it's a little unfair to also look for preparation programs to sort of solve this uh, on their own as well and just build in, just say, well, just add a course, right? Like, is, wouldn't it be easy just to add a course? Like, okay, well, what course do you want us to remove, <laughs> right? So <laughs> what, what, what do you think is not important? Should we take out the special ed course? Uh, should, we, should we take out the course on ELLs? Um, should we take out the math course? Like, you know, should we take out the classroom management course? Which course do you want us to take out by adding this in, right? So uh, it becomes challenging. But in my when I went through a preparation program back way back when, um, it, you know, it was mentioned a little bit here, but it was almost more based on the instructor uh, as to how they were sort of throwing that into the to the curriculum and almost giving you a little bit of an awareness and a heads up as opposed to being it uh, a formal structured part of the program. But from school districts, I think orientation, right? Every school district at the beginning of every school year does orientation. Is this something that is talked about? Is there an awareness brought to their staff regarding their behavior and their interaction with students, their use of social media? Do they have policies in place regarding social media? Uh, can they uh, exchange their personal cell phone number with a student? Is it okay for them to text regarding a work assignment or a test question or something like that? Are there our limitations as to when those communications can occur? Uh, so in other words, should communication need to stop at 9 p.m.? Are there hour restrictions based on the grade level of the students? If a high school student's running from school to practice, to work or whatever, maybe that could be a little bit later at night because maybe it is later by the time that they actually settle in and do some stuff. So I think looking at what policies they have in place, like obviously with uh, work computers, what sites that they can go on and so forth and allowed to visit you know, and with the social media. So I think bringing awareness to that during orientation is a good thing. And then um, either working with their human resources or their attorney for de developing policies and procedures around the use of technology. And particularly when they're engaging with students, this can also apply, you know, adult to adult as well as those are some issues that we sometimes deal with. You know, we're not talking about only cases in which educators are engaging with students inappropriately. There can be uh, situations in which they're engaging with other adults uh, inappropriately. So I, I would say those are a couple pieces of advice to a local school district. And again, it, it's easy coming from the ivory tower of the State Department of Ed, right? Anyway, Brian, just to reframe this, you know, obviously it's not the quintessential ivory tower, right? I mean, what the goal here is, is not to analyze this from some academic perspective, but quite literally to keep as many educators from winding up in your office as possible. So I think the, the kind of concluding thing that would be useful is to have you offer what your top suggestions are to any educators who are listening, you know, whether they're in Massachusetts or not, the licensure is not terribly different state to state. What should people pay attention to in their day-to-day -day work as an educator to keep themselves protected? So good question. And I think, you know, part of that is, you know, actually some common, un unfortunately, some common sense approaches, right? So I think, you know, educators in general want to be helpful. They want to build connections with their students. Uh, they want to help sort of shape them and, and direct them um, and, and see them grow and so forth. So it can be challenging to say, you know, you, at the same time as you're trying to do that, you need to have your guard up and you need to be aware. And not only do you need to be aware regarding yourself and uh, what your impressions may be seen by either other students or other adults, but 
be on the lookout for other educators in your building. And that can be challenging, right? Do you see a student uh, go into a classroom uh, and then that door closes? Do you see a student consistently uh, appear in someone's classroom during a time that you don't think that they should be there? Um, it's the middle of the school day, but all the time, you know, maybe as that student is on a work hall study or something like that, they're appearing in so-and-so's room. Um, you know, different different things along those lines. What else? From an educator standpoint, um, NEA, which is the one of the large uh, unions, I know that they have built uh, a series and set of micro credentials that brings awareness to this. And I believe if you're a member of NEA, you can take that at no cost. Uh, so that could be, you know, just about every state has some sort of license renewal component, um, assuming where an educator needs to go out and do some professional development. This could be something that not only helps to bring you some awareness, but also you know, you can then use to renew your license as well. And it's free professional development that NEA is offering. So, you know, that could be something we sort of call it like the grooming behavior and, and techniques and so forth, right? Where an educator uh, sometimes, you know, not to paint a broad brush at any sort of educator role. Sometimes music teachers end up building really close relationships with certain students, students that might be really skilled in the music area and that they, uh, you know, want to, you know, help them move on and, and really grow their love of music and maybe help them towards their goals of doing whatever. And then I'll, before you know it, uh, something has gone a little bit too far in that relationship. Brian, I'm I'm just shaking my head because I you know went to school in Massachusetts 1977 to 1981 and I could tell you stories that would curl your hair about those kinds of interactions. It was a very different mindset back then altogether. I do think we we shouldn't close this out without giving NASTEC another shout out for a couple of resources. Number one, the Model Code of Ethics for Educators, which we spend a lot of time talking about. And then NASTEC is also uh, developing and expanding their so-called NASTEC Academy, which includes courses on these ethical considerations. And in the interest of disclosure, I, I'm the subject matter expert for the cyber piece of that, but those courses are generally available to districts and educators around the country. So maybe something for people to take a look at. Yeah, definitely. And so much work went into the model code. Nothing had really existed within our profession before. And Anne-Marie Fenton in Georgia did a ton of work, as did others. Uh, cooperation from ETS, one of the large testing companies, uh, brought together educators from around the country. Uh, so this isn't something that was built minus educative voice. It was built largely with educative voice. Uh, so yeah, that model code is definitely something that is is starting to be utilized as well across different states and so forth and being added into sort of their standards and their expectations. So yeah, lots of lots of good work being done by NASDAQ in this in this area. Yeah, that was uh that was a lot to take notes on for me who's doing the show notes over here. So good. I think I got the links to those things in there and I think that's good. Brian, this has been really great talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for teaching us and helping us understand things and the nuances that exist in this area. Yeah, sure. No problem. My pleasure. Excellent, Brian. 
Well, thank you again. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, teacher licensing, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you enjoy the show and we'll share it with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have any questions or topic suggestions or guest ideas. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast like we did. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice. We look forward to seeing you on our next show, our live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.